good to see each one of you here today as we open the Word of God and share together. Let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come to you as we open your Word. We praise you for your goodness and your gracious graciousness. Lord, as I come today to share your Word with these dear folks, I pray you give me strength and stamina. And I pray, Father, you'd give me your Spirit's guidance to share the precious truths of your word. And Lord, may we be edified, may we be convicted, may we be encouraged. We know the Holy Spirit does a work in our lives that's different from one to another. And so we just ask that you would come and be among us and that you would speak to us through the illumination of your word. And we will praise you for it in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat> Every year on Memorial Day, we have a very special time here. We uh, set up inflatables, and we have hot dogs and cookies and potato chips for the community, the neighborhood, to invite everyone to come and celebrate Memorial Day and remember those who have given their lives for us and service to our country. And each year, it seems very consistent almost last year of course we had the covids and we didn't have too, we didn't have anything going on last year but in years gone by it's been pretty consistent that there'd be about oh maybe around 30 uh what should i call them decisions 30 people who uh 30 individuals who would uh, pray the sinner's prayer now in a lot of circles uh they would say 30 people got saved but we like to say 30 people made a profession of faith. Because, you know, we find that we're diligent to follow up those 30 individuals. And there's many variety of different things that happen in different people's lives. It's amazing. I remember one young man, his grandmother was thrilled that he had made a profession for Christ. She had been praying for him. And so we never saw him really in this church, but he ended up going to another church, not quite like ours, I'm, I'm sure, but uh, I think a church that preached the gospel and was in line with uh, his family. And others just disappeared. Many of them were younger individuals. The time of transition from the world to Christ can be a very difficult time. And although many of these were young people, uh, in the days of the early apostles and the early church, there were people that were all over the spectrum that had different issues and problems that confronted them. And as we look at the book of Hebrews this morning, we find there in, in view a particular group of people and this group of people are people who have made professions for the Lord, who have demonstrated that they walked with him, they loved him. But in the routine of life going on, they are drifting away from the New Testament church. People who were Hebrews, who have become Christians in a culture that apart from being majorly secular, was highly Jewish, especially in Jerusalem and in the area of Israel. 
And uh, these individuals, many of them knew the Lord, had come to know the Lord. But we know in the book of Hebrews, as we look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that the great miracles, sign miracles, which indicated that God was uh, behind the apostles and was inspiring them through the Holy Spirit, those great sign miracles were vanishing away. And in fact, had ceased by the time the book of Hebrews was written. It says in chapter 2, verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It says, was confirmed unto us by them. It was confirmed unto us by them who gave the message and worked the miracles. Was confirmed. It isn't, it isn't being confirmed in that way now. And so the, the Christian life was becoming more normal, I guess you would say, like our Christian life. And uh, God still intervenes in history and in our personal lives in some amazing, marvelous ways that we can't see anything less than that was a miracle. But they're not sign miracles. I mean miracles where people uh, stood up and walked who've been crippled their whole life and miracles that were intended to demonstrate clearly to the public were undeniable and demonstrated that these men were indeed individuals who were apostles or spokesmen for God. And in the midst of these individuals, there were Jewish people, Hebrews, who were Jews, who were being saved. They, some of them, of course, were professions were not real, but as we look at our Bibles, we, we find here in chapter 3, verse 1, for example, in the chapter we're in, he says, Wherefore, holy brethren, not just brethren, but holy brethren, uh, those among the brethren, those among who we consider to be our brothers and sisters in the Lord and the church, individuals who are truly set apart, who are truly believers. They are ones who have been partakers of the heavenly calling, who are called of God, although they were formerly Jewish or Hebrew in descent. Now, these individuals lived in the midst of a culture that was Jewish, as I said a moment ago. The temple was still there. The sacrifices were still being presented in the temple day in and day out. If you study the practice and procedure of the Jews in those days, it was very intense. It was very demanding, as it was to live under the law at any time in history. It consumed a great deal of time. There was a great deal of tradition. There was a great deal of cultural uh, habit, uh, cultural activities that you were part of that created an atmosphere of worship in your mind. And when an individual became a Christian, that changed. There were some, like Paul, who, who somehow were partially involved, but for most part, the Christians, uh, they weren't a part of that anymore. The, the sacrifices were left behind, and they came out of that. And it was a very difficult transition for people who were faithful and, and consumed and immersed in the Jewish culture. 
And so as time went by, and as the civilized world, so-called civilized, I guess, as the secular world uh, began to step forward, they began to throw stones, literally, at this Christian group. The, the Jews, yes, they were, they were not loved by the Romans or Herod. They, they, they were looked down upon. They were at times persecuted. But the new boy on the block to throw the whip at was a Christian. And, and he got it not only from the secular leaders and the civil government, but he got it from his former friends, the Jewish people. And it was pretty hard to take. It was a pretty difficult test of their faith. Uh, we could compare it today to the culture we have. Our culture today is very immersing. It's very uh, much around us, very influential, very controlling. And it's sometimes difficult, often difficult, for an individual who makes a profession for the Lord, who actually is genuinely saved, to come out of the world and become a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Well, in the midst of this scene, this scenario, there appears a letter to these individuals. I guess we talk about who it, was bit, who it had been written by. I guess they probably knew who it had been written by. Whoever it was, it was a legitimate, a legitimate uh, author. And he comes with these words of instruction and these words of warning. And in chapter 3, verse 12, there is a warning that is one of several that are in the book. Some who outlined the book around the warning calls say this is about the third one. There is a warning. He comes crying out to these people. Because you see, some of these Jews who had put their faith in Christ we're starting to hesitate a little bit and slip off back into the temple to be with their old friends and to share in their old traditions and their, their, old, uh, their old social circle. And, and along comes the writer of Hebrews, and he says to them, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, an evil heart of unbelief. Well, before we talk a lot about that, we're going to look at the text more generally and come back to it in the sequence of time here as we speak. But I want you to look now at this text. Uh, I hope to consider from verse 7 down to verse 19 today. But we're going to read, first of all, verses 7 through 11. Follow with me in your copy of the Word of God, beginning in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest.
they do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Now, in, in, in our Bibles, the punctuation isn't inspired. Uh, the words are inspired, but the punctuation is, is added. And I wonder in your Bibles, if it's the same as mine, do you have a parenthesis that starts up in verse 7 and ends way down in about verse 11 in some of your Bibles? It's, a, it's kind of an insert that's put there from the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews is using, as we're instructed in the New Testament, it's very legitimate to do, in fact, very wise to do, in fact, intended by God that we do. He's going back into the Old Testament, and he's drawing out of the Old Testament an illustration to try to make the seriousness of what they're doing real to them. As they say, nothing is new under the sun. And what was being experienced by them had been experienced by other generations in somewhat different ways. So he was going to go back, and he's going to go back, in fact, to the wilderness wanderings of the Hebrew people after they left Egypt. And again, we need to have a little bit of historical background. You'll remember that the children of Israel were in Egypt, and they had been brought down there and lived there for some 400 years, and there rose up, Exodus tells us, a pharaoh uh, who, who knew them not. And he made their labor hard. And he saw that they were multiplying in great numbers. And it was a political problem because he had aliens that were uh, beginning to outnumber his uh, citizens. And so he tried some different things to stop that population growth. But he couldn't stop it. And then finally God intervened. And through the prophet Moses, he confronted Pharaoh and he said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And you remember how that worked out. Pharaoh refused totally to let them go. And so there fell plagues on him, one by one by one. And as the plagues fell, he hardened his heart and they got worse. Until finally there was the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, when all the houses of the land that did not spread the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorposts and header of their abode experienced the death of their firstborn in their household. That was a massive number of people, the firstborn. It would have hit almost every household in some way. But for those, which was primarily the, the Jews, who put the blood on the doorposts of their house. It was a mark of the blood of the sacrificial lamb, which pointed to the redemption that was someday come in Christ. And it was an expression of their faith in God. It was an indication of their uh, trusting in God and, and of their being uh, what we would call saved individuals. Well, they finally left Egypt in an amazing way. And as they left Egypt, there appeared before them a pillar of smoke and fire that led them out over the, through the Red Sea, destroyed the Egyptian army, and took them into the wilderness, and there uh, guided and directed them, and eventually they were given food, manna, they were given quail to eat, 
their cares were taken care of. They had witnessed some of the greatest, most graphic, most tremendous uh, miracles and acts of God of any generation to live upon the face of this earth. So much so that even Hollywood, when they wanted to make a movie, chose the Ten Commandments that period of time to make a movie because it was so colossal in the way those miracles could be dramatized. And so they had tremendous privilege. They received the law at Mount Sinai. They inst received instructions for the building of the tabernacle at Mount Sinai. And they uh, were marching on into the Hebrew life, I we say Christian life, in the Hebrew life, the, the Old Testament Hebrew life. And time had gone by, and God had told them that he would give them the promised land, the land that he had promised Abraham. He would give them the land that many years before God had appeared and promised to Abraham. And he told them that he would go before them and he would fight for them. Well, in the course of all these events, there was the sending out of the 12 spies. And uh, people have debated about whether that was a wise thing to do in view of the fact that God had already promised they'd take the land. But you know, there's always a question about all human responsibility versus God's sovereignty and so forth. And uh, there's a certain amount of legitimacy to carrying through in a, a normal manner and pursuing a military campaign. And so really, uh, the spies were sent out just to see what was there and how they might be able to face it and then allow God to carry them through. But when the spies came back, they received or gave a mixed report. Of course, you remember, 10 said, no, there's no way. The people of the land are too great, too big for us to defeat them. But Joshua and Caleb, you remember, they said, we can take the land. Let's go in. And there arose a division among the people that was so great that, that Moses was even threatened himself. And God finally said, enough is enough. And he, he declared this generation dead in the wilderness, essentially. Uh, it was a major, crucial turning point that came to be known as the provocation. The generation that left Egypt and saw all the miracles, we're going to call the Exodus generation. And the generation that grew up after them, their children, we're going to call the wilderness generation for clarity. And the Exodus generation that came out of Egypt, they left Egypt under the blood of the Passover, became the Passover celebration. They were generally a saved group of people, but a mixed multitude, the Bible tells us. There was mixed in among them unbelievers. Uh, I'm sure some who were Egyptian and some who were, uh, who were Israeli. But they reached a point of no return. And God intervened in this situation. And he said, that's enough. You are not going to see the promised land. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But judgment fell on them. Physical judgment. He told them that they would not enter into the Holy Land from 20 years and up. 
but they would die and their carcasses would be buried in the wilderness because of their unbelief, their unbelief in the promise of God. Exodus 14, 14, it says, The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Numbers 14, 9, Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But those promises of the Lord, they did not regard. They did not regard. So as we turn now our attention to the text, we're going to outline it like this. The admonition against disobedience in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And there's an Old Testament lesson here to be learned in verses 7 through 11. And that's the parenthetic part that you see marked here. It's from an Old Testament psalm, and uh, I think it was 75. And it is uh, God speaking about what happened there with regard to the people in the wilderness. And looking at verse 7 in particular, it says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice. Now, as we open the thinking here, and there's another piece of background, and that is the context of the text. And the context of the text is the verse, six verses of chapter 3. And the issue there, as it has been throughout the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus Christ is superior to anything else that a person might look to. or He's superior to the angels. He's, he's superior to the sacrifices. And he's superior also to Moses. Uh, in our last message in, in this book, we looked at chapter 3. We looked at, at Moses and what, uh, what the Israelis sought him, what, who he was. He was... Uh, you, you can't quite comprehend how high they elevated Moses in their religion and their thinking. Uh, Moses had talked to God face to face on the mountain. He, he was the only one that had ever talked to God face to face and lived. He was a man who talked to God face to face and had to cover his face because of the brilliance that was on his face when he came back to the people. He was the one who had asked to see God, and God had gone by him, and he'd seen, he'd seen the uh, glory in, in his passing by after he passed by the cave where he was, where he was protected from death in, in, in the vision. Tremendously admired and looked up to, even a type of Christ. And uh, so they're making the point here in, the, in these first verses, Jesus Christ was greater than Moses. And so it says here, wherefore, taking that into consideration, think how much more serious it is that a person be in rebellion against Jesus Christ, who was far superior to Moses, who in fact was God himself, when it was already realized that rebellion to Moses was just a serious thing. And so it says, today, if you will hear his voice, today, today, the Holy Ghost is speaking here in the psalm. The Holy Ghost isn't mentioned, of course, in the progress of Revelation. Uh, the Holy Ghost hadn't been clearly identified, although he had been identified in, very shadow, in many shadowy and Im implications in the Old Testament. He hadn't been directly identified and named as he is in the New Testament, and so here he's directly named. He is the one who is the, one who is the uh, God person behind the inspiration of the Bible, Though David wrote the psalm, the Holy Spirit inspired it. He is the one who illuminates us in the study of God's word. He is the one who brings conviction upon us 
as we read God's word. And so he is very much involved in what is going on here. And uh, as he spoke for God through the writer of Hebrews and through David in this psalm, his first words are today. And as you read this text through, you'll find it's not the last time he uses them. Today, today. The challenge here is to make a spiritual decision. He's calling to these Hebrew people and saying, you need to make a spiritual decision here in your life of whether you're going to continue to pursue Judaism or truly turn and come to Christ. And, you know, we, we tend to put off spiritual decisions. Uh, when the Lord prompts us to come forward and pray or even in our personal private lives in our, our homes, in the privacy of our own bedrooms, as we read God's word or contemplate God's word, or maybe as we don't do either, but God brings thoughts to our mind, uh, we always want to put off making a spiritual decision, confessing a sin, committing ourselves to do something God is leading us to do. And as we go through this text here, there are warnings. Don't put off spiritual decisions. There may not be another opportunity. Don't put off spiritual decisions. Don't put off dealing with things in your life that are going to separate you from Jesus Christ. And that was what was happening here. The Jews were going back into the temple and its traditions and its customs and its people and its ceremonies and all that. And God was saying, no, no, no. Come back and obey me today. Very, very seldom when a person is challenged to do something today, uh, many times that today comes and goes and the decision's never made and it's not made, maybe never. Maybe for a long time. If never... It can be a horrible thing if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. For a long time, it can be the loss of a lot of blessing, a, a lot of time falling deeper into sin. No, make spiritual decisions promptly as God leads you. And hear his voice. He will speak to you through his word in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, illumination. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. The word provocation is used three times in the New Testament, and it so happens all three times are in our text here. Verses 8, 15, and 16, the provocation is made mention of. Uh, it says in Numbers chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, that ten times the children of Israel provoked the Lord to anger. But this last time was different. It was the provocation. It was what we might say is the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the last straw. It, it, God said, uh, this isn't going to go on anymore like this. We're going to take a change of direction, a major change of direction, because of your hardness of heart. And now he speaks to the people in this age, and he's saying, harden not your heart. And when you're going back over to the old way, and you're rationalizing it. And now you can picture this. You're, you're not Hebrews here, but uh, 
You could picture this of going back into the culture of our world that people are immersed in. And, and they're going back, and God is saying, harden not your heart, but number one, hear me, and number two, act now on what you're hearing. Harden not your heart. Uh, people are, are saying all kinds of rationalizations why they should do what they should do. All kinds of excuses why they should do what they should do, why they're doing what they're doing going back. He says, no, harden not your hearts as they did in the provocation. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, there came a point when Kadesh Barnea was that turning point when God sent forth judgment because of the hardness of their unbelief. Chapter 3, verse 9, When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. These individuals, as we said a moment ago, uh, they were quite familiar with who God was and, and his reality. I mean, as we said before, they had seen firsthand his work on their behalf. It says here uh, that they tempted him. They, they examined him to know the nature or character of this individual. They had walked with him. They, they had seen his nature, his character demonstrated in his choice of times to come before them and, and act on their behalf. They'd seen it in the law. They lived with him, so to speak. And they knew him. They had, they had an idea. Prove him, test, learn his genuineness. He hadn't failed them. He had always come through for them, even though at times they felt that uh, they had to cry out when they wouldn't have had to, but because of their impatience and failure to wait on the promises of the Lord, they cried out. But he was always faithful to them. They saw his works firsthand, the many miracles. It's interesting, but the time of writing of the book of Hebrews is roughly about 40, a little short maybe, of 40 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And the children of Israel would be in the wilderness 40 years. And then in that time, the judgment would take place. We'll come back to that in a minute. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. They grieved God. They vexed God. They err in their heart, the place where we make choices. Our heart is our inner self. It is the core of who we are and of how we think and what we do. It is the beginning of, of everything we live out in our lives. And he says here, uh, they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. They didn't thoroughly understand his ways, either from the, the, re, the release of the, the commandments that they had been given, nor in terms of practicing them and having the practical savvy of how to apply God's ways in their own lives. And they were not living God's way. And they weren't depending upon God day by day, in spite of the fact that they were being supplied day by day with manna, a miracle, a miracle, a miraculous thing. But you know, it just got to be kind of old and taken for granted that it'd be there. Now, recognizing that it was indeed a 
miracle that God was performing daily in their presence. And they became hard and caught up in the routine of their everyday life, whatever it was there in the wilderness. And they were just doing what they could to enjoy themselves. Uh, we see that as we look back on the foot of Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments and find that when their supervision, when their authority, their leadership was away from them a period of time, they got all involved in all kinds of trouble and mischief and dancing and all sorts of sordid things. Are you living your life your way or God's way? This was the question that he is posing to these Hebrew uh, believers who are, are going back toward Judaism again. Just as they, in the wilderness, they were living their way, not God's way. So these Hebrews were not living God's way, the way of the New Testament, the way of faith in Christ. They were drifting back into the temple and doing it their own way because it was comfortable because they didn't face the persecution there that they faced as a believer in Christ. They just would go through life and through the path that was simplest to follow, that was easy to carry them. And we do that too. We do things just to get it done. We do things assuming that we know how to do that. We've always done it that way. Without stopping to think, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? How can I do this in such a way that it brings glory to you? So, verse 11 continues, God speaking, I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. They shall not enter into my rest. Now, rest here is the Canaan rest. It is the rest from their enemies. When they went into the land of Canaan, Joshua led them, and uh, they, def they defeated the nations that were there. There were small pockets of individuals left here and there uh, among the people that were left there in God's providence to test them. But for the most part, all the people were driven out. And it was a place of comfort in that there was relief from their enemies comfort and rest, Canaan rest. But this generation that had died in the wilderness would not see that, the Exodus generation. It would be the wilderness generation that experienced that. And uh, there's a lesson here for us to understand that there can come a point in the life of a believer, a point of provocation, as it's called, in your life as a believer, resulting in the loss of blessing or perhaps the loss of reward. They were saved people in the wilderness. They weren't all lost, and that's why they died in the wilderness. They were saved people. They are people that had put the blood on their doorposts when they came out of Egypt. Uh, they believed God for salvation, but they didn't believe God for how to live their lives and how to move on and how to walk with him daily. And they continually rebelled against him. And they continually provoked him. Until finally there came that day at Kadesh Barnea when the spies went into the land and came back with their reports that they flat out uh, 
rebelled against what God's will was and had been made very clear for them in the Word of God, despite the majority opinion of the spies. And they rebelled, and God passed a sentence on them. Ye shall not enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan that I have promised you, but your children shall into it, but not you. All that are 20 years of age and older. Now, that did not mean that he did not forgive them, but it meant that there was a consequence to their repeated, continual disbelief and failure to follow him. In fact, if we look at the text in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 14, verses 18 to 23, if you want to turn there, we have a record of the exchange that took place between Moses and God that tells this, this reality. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, Moses cries out to the Lord, The Lord is long-suffering of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and to the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. He forgave them. But, verse 22, because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt, and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land, which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Their persistent resistance of God in their daily walk, and in obedience to him and the revelation that they had given him, resulted in a point of time, which is called the provocation, at which time they, they faced uh, physical, not, not eternal, heavenly. They don't lose their salvation, but they faced discipline or uh, judgment from God for what they had done that caused them to lose blessings that they might otherwise have had. Uh, as a matter of fact, even Moses, because he struck the rock, was not taken into the new promised land, but was allowed to see it and died there in the wilderness. The Canaan rest was forfeited through unbelief that God will keep his promises here on earth if we obey him, but through unbelief that he would do that. And the result of this unbelief was judgment during this life, temporal judgment, physical judgment that even went unto death a loss of future rewards, a loss of the Canaan rest, not of salvation, but of the rest of Canaan as God took them into the land and destroyed all their enemies and gave them rest from war. The promised land was a place of rest. It was even called that. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 9. For ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth me. The point is that disobedience and the distrust of Israel debarred them from ever enjoying the blessings of God that they might have enjoyed. There's another lesson here. Well, of course, the application here is 
that these people are going back into Judaism and how, how, how long are you going to stray like that before God takes some kind of judgmental action? It, it's really, as we're going to see here in a minute, the question of apostasy, a person who's made a, g- a genuine decision for the Lord but now strays off into uh, an appearance of unbelief, an appearance of compromise for a long period of time or uh, into their old way of life as these Jews were doing. Uh, there's a second lesson here I think we need to think a little bit about, and that is, you know, God makes a point of the age of 20 in the Old Testament. 20 was the age that was a cutoff here for those who would not go into the promised land. 20 was the age at which an individual could begin to serve as a Levite, as a priest in the Old Testament. Uh, there's something about the age of 20 that is a, is a special time of accountability established in the Old Testament. And I'm not saying it's a, a law of the Medes and the Persians, but I want to suggest to you that uh, 20 years of age is a time when you need to stop and reflect on your life. You need to stop and see, well, where am I in my spiritual life? Am I walking with the Lord? Uh, you may be a, a child in a church family, and you've never made a profession for Christ. And you're, you're getting into those years now, the upper teens, early 20s, when you pretty well understand what's going on here. Where is, the call, where is your decision? Where are you going? Have you made a decision for Christ yet? Have you been baptized in a public commitment of your faith? Uh, it's a time when we need to stop and look back and take a check on our lives to see where we're at in our spiritual lives. Numbers 14, 29 says, Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward which have murmured against me. And so, and so it was as they went on in their wilderness wanderings that they had 40 years before they would enter into the promised land, and only the new generation would enter into the promised land. So here it comes. Here it comes, verse 12. Verse 12 is really picking up from verse 7. In other words, wherefore, take heed. The part we've been talking about is an illustration from the Old Testament. But the wherefore, which goes back to the greatness of Christ, greater than Moses, It carries on with the command, imperative, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the truth. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart. Uh, We can't, one of the beauties of the Greek language, and one of the reasons I think that the Bible says it was the fullness of time when Christ appeared upon the earth, is the Greek language is a very precise language. And the word take heed there, we could underline or put in bold to try to somehow make it stand out as a command. But in the Greek language, it's in a form, uh, an imperative form that tells us it's a command. Take heed. Stop and look. Take heed. As we're just saying for young people at certain points in their lives, they need to stop and look back and take heed. And it, Unbelief is wicked in your heart. 
if there are promises in God's word that you're refusing to depend upon, refusing to stake out on, that's the mark of an evil heart. It's interesting that the departing, the word for departing here, is, uh, is the Greek word from which our English word apostasy comes. It's essentially saying, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in apostatizing from the living God. This is the idea of an apostle. He's saying here, you know, you're... You're going to come to your life if you keep refusing God. When he, there's going to come discipline. And you're going to lose the opportunity for reward that you might have had if you'd remained faithful. Is there something in your life that you keep holding on to that you need to get rid of? There could come a day of provocation when God sends his judgment for that thing. And it has lasting consequences, not in terms of your salvation, but in terms of the rest of your life here on earth as a servant of the Lord. He says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from, notice this, the living God. Going back to Judaism did not take them back to the living God. The Bible says there's only one way to the living God. And he said it clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, as Jesus Christ. The Old Testament Hebrew system has been set aside in God's program, and Jesus Christ is the center of God's program. He is the living God, and he is the one that you're departing from. You're not going back into a system of, uh, into a system of, being able to find God in where you were before just because of the warm fuzzies of the ritualism and all the things that go on there. And so we ask ourselves, do you live believing the promises of God? Do you live believing the promises of God? Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Well, that's the negative side. That's the negative side. Now we look at the positive side in verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. Come alongside each other to help each other. The word here for exhort one another, or for uh, exhort one another, is the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It speaks of coming alongside someone to encourage them, to help them. The anecdote for developing a hard heart is a caring and encouraging community of believers. And that was a challenge to the people here as they had these Hebrew friends who were going back into the temple system instead of staying faithful to Christ among the people who had identified with Christ for their salvation. It's a, it's a present imperative, they say in the Greek. It's exhort one another is a command, and uh, it's, it's a present tense means continually, be continually encouraging, supporting one another. 
The anecdote for developing a hard heart is a caring and encouraging community of believers. Uh, a show of love, compassion, care, interest, attention can be a very powerful thing in the life of someone that's feeling very alone because they're being persecuted or mistreated uh, in the outside world. And then again, there comes the, the command that we have been given here to act today, act today. Uh, today is the time when we need to make decisions for the Lord because when we don't make them today, they're likely not ever to be made. Do you, I think most of you probably experienced this. You've been to a children's museum or someplace like that where they have a vortex, and you take a penny and you put it in the top of this vortex, and the penny rolls around and around. How many of you have seen one of those and done that? Yeah, a lot of you. Well, as it rolls around and round and round, what happens? What happens? goes faster and faster and faster and faster. That's the way sin is. When we have sin in our lives and we don't confess it and forsake it, it moves faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And pretty soon it gets down in the neck of that vertex and you can't get it out again. You can't get it out. It just goes, it's gone. It's gone. That's what sin is like, the vortex of sin. And that's the long-suffering of God. He, he, he allows you to pursue a course until there finally comes a point where he intervenes. It says that sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. Verse 13, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And uh, in, the, in the Greek language, the word the is before sin, in the sin. And that can either mean it's designated the particular sin of the Hebrews of going back to the old way, or it could be the generic use of the, of the article to mean sin in general. But it says sin is deceitful because it offers an immediate, honorable, and easy relief to the present situation. That was the old way. They had friends there. They, they had customs they were used to there. They had things that gave them warm fuzzies there. They, they had, had been there and developed a habit that uh, they could fall back into. And so going back to the old way was easy. You could do it quickly. It was honorable. And they would slip away from following the true God to going back to the old ways. And so as we think on these verses today, the, the Lord is telling us as we look back on, on the experience of the Hebrew children in the wilderness, number one, don't put off a spiritual decision. The days will pile up. The months will pile up. If Jesus speaks to you, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about something you need to do, maybe it's to get saved, maybe it's to be baptized, maybe it's to become a church member, maybe it's something personal in your life, in your relationship with your husband or wife, or in your personal life. 
don't delay making a spiritual decision. Because if you do, the deceitfulness of sin will make that penny go faster and faster and faster until it's very difficult to grab as it goes down into the neck of that vortex. God is long-suffering, but sin is deceitful, and it will carry you away before you know it. And remember, going the easy route, the comfortable route, is not necessarily the best route when we pray, we need to ask ourselves, am I really seeking God's way or am I rationalizing to, to defend some way in my life that I know he's not pleased with, but that I can pursue and for the moment I won't have to face any issues or confrontation or problems. Father in heaven, help us as we examine ourselves in this time to understand uh, where we are in this text. Lord, to examine our lives and our ways. Lord, is there anything in our lives that is not pleasing? Is, does there need to be in our lives a greater examination of the Scripture, a prayer to find out your ways because we're substituting our ways? Or we just pray that you speak to us as we Sing this hymn of invitation now that you would work through us, through your, through your spirit to teach us and have us make the decisions that you want us to make today. In Jesus' name, amen.